Luke chapter 20. We've been traveling through the book of Luke and we're nearing the end. This is the beginning of the last week of Jesus's life. It's Passover week. Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem in the previous chapter. And what we get in chapter 20 and 21 is Jesus's farewell address to the crowds as he teaches from the temple on this Passover week. But before we jump into it, I want us to get a better understanding or idea visually or conceptually about what this would look like. I mean, we hear the term Passover and we're 2000 years and however many thousand miles removed from what this would mean in this time, in this culture. Oh, most of us know the significance if we grew up in church. Passover is a Jewish festival. It's a Jewish feast where they're celebrating the deliverance that God gave Israel from Egypt and from Pharaoh. The 10 plagues, the Passover lamb, and then Israel was free to leave captivity and head towards the promised land. And from that time forward, God establishes, Yahweh establishes, hey, this is a time of remembrance. This is important. This is going to be a feast time, a time of celebration. It's mandated. Matt Heverly calls that God's edict to party or die. It's a mandated feast. It's a giant party, and it is a giant party. It's a little hard to get an understanding of how many people this would be. I read a whole bunch of historical um, commentaries on this. Um, The numbers vary greatly, but most everyone agrees that during Passover, the population of the city of Jerusalem would grow fivefold. A conservative number is that Jerusalem normally had about 60,000 people in the city. And during Passover, there would be over 300,000 people in the city. It's packed. It's noisy. It's exciting. There's kids running everywhere. There's stuff going on. And part of the thing with Passover, we have to realize is every Jewish person was supposed to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. It's not like Christmas where we celebrated in our own homes. It would be like we all have to celebrate Christmas in New York City. And so everyone descends on one city to celebrate it together. And part of the Passover thing was this. The day of Passover, you were going to go into the temple and you were going to bring a lamb. Oh yeah, a lamb. Did I mention that? 300,000 people, every family has a sheep with them. Conservatively, if you're a family of five, because they're big families, that's 60,000 sheep. 30,000 people plus 60,000 sheep makes for a crazy city. And everybody would pack into the temple on the day. But before you could pack into the temple and before you could sacrifice your lamb, you had to be ritually cleansed. And it took a week. So most people show up in Passover, show up in Jerusalem one week before Passover. That's why Jesus is here. And you would do this. I forget about this. You know, when I first, um, when I first saw the outline for Luke and when we were going to be teaching it all, I was like, oh, we're teaching like the Easter story during Christmas time. It's a little weird. There's a thousand reasons to do it that way. But one of them 
it's really interesting to me is that Christmas is probably the thing we associate most or it's most like what a Passover would have been like. There would be traditions. There would be songs. You know, there were Passover songs. Just like we have Christmas songs, there were Passover songs. There are Psalms 120 through 132. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. They're the songs that the travelers would sing as they traveled to Jerusalem. Because we're not all jumping on United Airlines and flying to go to Passover. We have to travel. If you were from Nazareth, like Jesus was when he grew up, five days. That's five days of traveling and camping and traveling and camping. And you would do it every year. And as a kid, I'm sure you loved this. You would go to your same campsites along the side of the road. You would see friends you hadn't seen in a year. It's very possible your entire city would leave together. And it would be this giant procession and exciting and fun. And you'd be traveling to Jerusalem and you'd be singing these songs. And the songs are all about what Jesus did or what God did in Egypt. But they're also songs about what Messiah is going to do someday. Right? They're songs of remembrance, but they're also songs of promise, songs of prophecy. And you're singing these songs year after year and you're going to Jerusalem and you're running into a family you haven't seen and there's sheep and there's kids. And you remember that story where Jesus' parents lose him for like four days? I get it now, right? They just thought he was with the Rosenblatts in, in their tent for a couple days, you know, with his friends over there. So fun this would be. And then you finally make it to Jerusalem and it's packed. And, and on the day of Passover, you would be sacrificing your lamb and then you would take your lamb back and you would barbecue it. And there was so much lamb to be barbecued that they actually set up temporary barbecues all over the city in the streets. It's, a, it's the world's largest block party. And it's so festive and it's so fun, but it's also crazy and chaotic and intense. And that's a normal Passover. This Passover is even more so because we also have to understand what's going on. You see, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem and as he goes, he's gathering followers and he's gathering followers and he's gathering followers. And there are thousands of people now following Jesus to Jerusalem. They were going to go anyways. They might as well follow Jesus. And what are they looking for? What are they expecting? Many of them are expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem and create a whole new Passover to single-handedly overthrow Rome. Maybe they think that the 10 plagues are coming back. When we have to remember, that's what a lot of the crowd thought was going to happen. This is Messiah. Messiah was promised to overthrow tyranny, to free us. We're under the rule of Rome. Messiah is headed to Jerusalem. It's Passover, seems to be. And if we think that Rome didn't know about this, we haven't read our Bibles. Oh, Rome knew. There were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Roman centurions in the city. Normally there would be thousands, but even more so now. There's rumors of this man possibly claiming to be God, claiming to be Messiah, marching on the city. It's Passover. Rome did not like their revolts, did they? Oh, no. No, Rome was swift about their revolts. So you know the city was packed. And then Jesus finally shows up at Jerusalem. And what does he do? 
comes into the city on a parade, riding on a donkey, which is fulfilling a prophecy, on the day that Daniel prophesied Messiah would come. And everyone's singing and chanting. And what are they chanting? They're chanting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those are song lyrics. They're chanting a song. It was a specific song that actually would be sung during Passover anyways. It's interesting. There's all these um, songs of ascent, the songs that the travelers would sing as they're traveling up. That's Psalm 120 through 132. This is Psalm 118. This was actually a psalm, a song that the people who lived in Jerusalem or who had already showed up in Jerusalem would sing to welcome the people as the travelers came in. It's a Christmas song. And it was a song about what it was going to be like someday when Messiah came to Jerusalem and Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they're chanting it over and over and over again. It would be like if Jesus showed up at Christmas time and we went marching through the city saying, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Over and over and over again. That's what's going on. And then what does Jesus do? He marches to the temple and he cleans it out. He throws out the money changers. He throws out the lenders. You ever wonder why no one stopped Jesus? Because he had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people behind him. When it says that the Pharisees were afraid of the people, they were afraid of the people. No one stops Jesus. And he throws everybody out. And then he sets up and he starts teaching from the temple. That's where we pick up the story today. So Jesus has thrown everyone out. He's got the triumphal entry. You've got the centurions. You've got the mob who thinks maybe Jesus is going to overthrow the government. You've got the disciples who are scared that Jesus is going to be killed. You have Jesus who knows he's about to die. You've got the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Their whole fear was if Jesus comes into power, he's going to kick us out. And all that comes together in chapter 20. And here's what we see. One day... As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things and who is it that gave you this authority? You guys see the scene? The crowd is listening. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're pushing their way through. Jesus, who gives you authority to do this? Right? And every Roman centurion, their hand just kind of goes to the sword at their belt. Tensions are high. And what does Jesus say? He answered and says, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say for man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Three things from this first interaction. The first thing that I think is so brilliant, Jesus is so brilliant, isn't he? I mean, it's so fun to study the gospels because we learn about God's character We learn about God's plan, but we also just learn some really practical ways of dealing with people because Jesus is brilliant. 
And when Jesus is faced with a really tough, a tense, a drama-packed situation, he doesn't answer. He asks a question. I think we could learn a lot from that. I think we would do much better when tempers are high, when emotions are running rampant, to ask more questions and make fewer statements. You know, this is going to happen to us at some point in time. We're all going to sit down. Hopefully, you're going to sit down sometime with a couple who's... I said that wrong. Because I was going to say, hopefully, you're going to sit down with a couple who's going through marital problems. And I don't mean that we're going to hoping that people have marital problems. What I mean is, hopefully, you guys are the ones that people want to turn to. Because you guys are loving your spouses and pouring into your marriages. You have good marriages. I mean, there's people I look out here, I'm like, I would like to sit down with you guys for a couple hours and just talk about marriage because I love watching you grow old together and love each other and enjoy each other, right? So this is gonna happen to you. You're gonna sit down with a couple who's having marital problems. And I think we'd be better served to ask questions than to just start talking. Do you want a better marriage? Why? What would a better marriage look like to you? Let's ask questions. What about when my kids are fighting, right? Hey, they're coming up, they're all arguing. She said this, he said this, and just stop. Hey, do you love your sister? Yeah. Well, then are you acting loving? When we ask questions, it's a great opportunity. That's probably not how it goes, though. It probably goes, do you love your sister? No. (laughs) Why not? Because they, which gives us a perfect opportunity to explain that love is not conditional on actions. But questions... Questions are hugely important. How about this one? Tell me your story. Tell me your story. Tell me what's going on. Tell me what happened. When people are coming to us and they're hurt and they're broken, sometimes we just want to give them quick Christianese advice, and I think we'd be better off like Jesus to ask more questions. I wrote something down in my Bible years ago that Matt said, because I know it'll happen to me someday, because it was always like this panic fear. Um, especially since ever since they made me an elder, they're like, I have this fear that someday someone's going to call me to a deathbed and I'm going to have to, because I just, I, I would rather be up here than in that situation. It scares me. I don't know what to say. And Matt had this great, great thing. And I wrote it down in my Bible so I'd never forget it. He says, whenever someone calls me in and someone is dying, the question I ask them, the question I ask them is this, does God love you? And if they say yes, the next question is why? And if they say no, the next question is why? And both of those lead to the gospel. It's absolutely brilliant. Does God love you? Maybe we don't have to wait for deathbeds to ask people that. Does God love you? Is there someone you know you need to ask them that question? Do you think God loves you? No. Why? Because he does. Because he does. Super brilliant. The second thing that I love about the story is this. Jesus doesn't answer their question. So here's what Jesus was doing. He's asking this question. Hey, tell us about John. And what do they say? Well, if we say that it was from John, then he'll say, why didn't you believe us? And if we say it wasn't from John, then the people will stone us. Jesus was asking this question to reveal their hearts. Here's what he's saying. Are you seeking information or confrontation? These guys weren't seeking information. They didn't really want to know what authority Jesus had. They didn't care. They just wanted to have a confrontation with Jesus. And you know what I learned from this with Jesus? When people just want a confrontation, 
we don't need to engage. We just really don't. That coworker who just wants to discuss all the contradictions in the Bible, are you looking for information? Because if so, great. Are you just looking for a confrontation? Because no, no, I, I just don't have time for that. I love that. It gives me some encouragement. We don't have to do that. Oh, when people are seeking, they'll find. And many times God will use us in their seeking. But if they just want a confrontation, no. What does Jesus say when he sends out the disciples and they go into a town and the people won't accept them? Just kick the dust off your shoes and keep on moving until you find someone who wants the message. That's encouraging to me. Finally, the, uh, the final observation I have on this um, little section is this. The question still isn't answered. Who gives Jesus authority? And the question there, I actually want to turn it more internally. Like, for me, who or what gives Jesus authority in my life? For you, who or what gives Jesus authority in your life? And you know what the answer is? You do. I do. It's absolutely amazing to me that the way God, the creator of the universe, has decided to interact with us is to give us a choice. Oh, someday he's coming back and he will assert the authority that is rightly his. But until that day, he gives us a choice whether or not to give him authority in our lives. And every day we have that choice. We can give authority, we can listen to cultural wisdom or we can listen to biblical wisdom. We can listen to God's economy or we can listen to our career. We can listen to our feelings, which is a huge problem in our culture. Absolutely ridiculous. What do we say? I've seen it written on Pinterest things, like written in all these little girls' rooms. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. What does the Bible say about our heart? It's deceitfully wicked. What are we telling people? Follow the truth. Right? Follow the truth. We can follow Jesus or we can follow our flesh. And here's the thing. Here's how I know that someone has authority in my life. This is the litmus test. Someone has authority in my life when I respond to their correction. Okay? So I used to work at a grocery store. I was moving up in management. I was like, you know, fifth or sixth down the line. I'm a night manager, right? Which you think is super cool when you're 19. But now that you're 35, you're like, you little night manager. It's okay. Life is, you know, you thought you were big britches. But I am technically in charge at 19 years old when the store manager goes home. And I can remember like building a display and making it look nice and having some, you know, cart pusher. It's like his second day on the job come in and be like, you know, you should move that. You know what? Go away. I think the bottle room is dirty. But if your boss shows up, says, hey, you need to move, you know, the cereal there. And this, well, absolutely. Yes, sir. Why? Because they have authority. When someone has authority in your life, you respond to correction. And that's the big difference I see between the people who are following Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is giving the Pharisees opportunity to correct their actions. And they don't. They won't put Jesus in authority. But Zacchaeus, last chapter, what does Zacchaeus do? Jesus gives correction. Zacchaeus turns, changes. Zacchaeus gave Jesus authority in his life. 
Have we given Jesus authority in our lives? Do you give Jesus authority in your life? That's a daily thing. Some days I do well. Some days not as well. Some days really bad. But every day, that should be a prayer of ours. Lord, be the authority in my life today. Take control. Be in charge. Who's in authority? And so then Jesus tells this parable. He turns from talking to the Pharisees and the scribes who are accusing him, and he turns over here and brilliantly tells this parable to the people, and it's all about the scribes and the Pharisees. It's great. It's genius. Here he goes. He says, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to the others. And then when they, this is the scribes and the Pharisees, heard this, they said, surely not. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Jesus now turns from discussing authority with the scribes and the Pharisees, and he tells this parable. And once again, it's absolutely brilliant. In nine verses, Jesus covers the entirety of the Old Testament from God's covenant with Abraham until Pentecost. It's both historical and prophetic because this is the story of Israel. God sent Israel into the promised land. God gave them so much, so many wonderful, so many beautiful things, like the vineyard owner lets it out to the vineyards. And the people here would know exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is retelling a parable from Isaiah chapter 5. The parable in Isaiah chapter 5 ends with this statement. The vineyard of the host of the king is the nation of Israel. Okay, so Israel knows. When we're talking about vineyards, it's us, right? It's us. So now we have this, ter- this tale of the tenants. Tale of the tenants. It's hard to say. <laughs> and they know. And what happened with the Jews? Jesus sent them prophets and they killed them. Jesus sent them prophets and they killed them. Jesus sent them warnings and messengers. Repent. Turn around. Give to me what is due to me. Because remember what God asked the nation of Israel, before he sent them into the promised land. It's Deuteronomy. It's Moses' final statement. Moses says this, I'm going to send, Jesus is going to send, God is going to send you into the promised land and he will protect you and he will care for you and he will provide for you if you obey him and worship him. 
That's what is due in this parable. When God says that he sent people, when this parable says that he sent people to collect what's due, that's what God did. God sent prophets. Hey, you're not worshiping me. You're not following my commandments. And the people would either turn around for a little while and then go back to their wicked ways, or they would just kill the prophets. Israel stoned Habakkuk. They stoned Jeremiah. They tortured Amos. Ezekiel was killed by the chief of the Jews. Zechariah was killed by the chief priest. I mean, there's not a good track record here. But over and over and over again, God is trying to get Israel's attention. Hey, I've given you this beautiful vineyard. I want to partner with you. I want to partner with you. Because remember, that was the plan for Israel the entire time. We have to get this. As we're looking at this this parable here where Jesus is basically saying, listen, I had this plan for Israel. I'm going to take this plan from Israel and I'm going to hand this plan over to my church. Well, that bears the question for us as his church. What was the plan? The plan was that Israel would partner with God. That by following his commandments and by worshiping him, they would be blessed and they would thrive and it would show other nations of the world how good it was to follow the one true living God. But Israel wanted the inheritance for themselves. That's what it says here. That's Jesus' parable. That's so interesting to me because at the end of this, he says, now I'm gonna take this and I'm gonna hand it to the church. And that's what he wants from us now. Just as God wanted to partner with Israel to show how wonderful it was to serve the one true living God, he wants to partner with his church so that we can show the world how wonderful it is to serve the one true living God. Are we doing it? Are we listening to the correction and giving him authority? Are we partnering with God in this? I pray that we are. That's an amazing little parable that he tells here. And then... He ends it with these two statements. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Just in case anyone around the crowd, any of the Pharisees were wondering who Jesus thought he was, he ends it by quoting two messianic prophecies about himself. This is Jesus announcing on the steps of the temple in front of the crowds on Passover, I'm Messiah. The first one, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, is another line from the same song that they were singing during Jesus' triumphal entry. Right? Remember, they're singing just like if we were walking through the city singing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And then Jesus responds a chapter later by saying, let every heart prepare him room. I mean, it's just another stanza from the same song. Everyone gets this. Everyone knows exactly what this is. And then verse 18, he's quoting the prophecy from Daniel chapter two about the stone that comes in and crushes the the, uh, statue in Daniel chapter two. So he's saying, I'm Messiah. If anyone is wondering, I'm Messiah. So now we have Jesus making two very important statements. One is, Will you, have, will you let me have authority in your life? And two is, I'm Messiah, and the time has come for a whole new deal. I'm gonna hand this thing over to my church. Are you ready to partner with me? And then we get the third thing. It says then that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something. 
And he said, he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, these are the spies, a little bit of flattery here. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarii, whose, like, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. It's very interesting to me. In the last two chapters of Jesus' teaching to the people, he's going to have to address money twice. Remember what Matt said on Sunday? 2,000 passages in the Bible on money. I had a whole bunch of stuff I was going to talk about money, you know, but then Sunday, and uh, probably should wait six months before I talk about money again. But I'm a rebel, so I'm going to do it anyways. Here's what Jesus says. Listen, this was the big deal. This was the big controversy at the time. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, they send spies in. They want to catch him. They want to make the people angry. And they say, hey, should we give money to this Roman government that's over us. And Jesus basically says, you know what? Why are you guys so worried about that? Like seriously, money's not the point. That's how I read this passage. This is God who's come to earth, who's lived a life sacrificially, who's about to die for his people. And his final statement on money is, listen, money's not the point. You guys get that? Do we really get that? Money's not the point. Accumulation isn't the goal. God did not design us in his image to be consumers. He designed us to be worshipers. Do we get that? Do I get that? Because here's the thing, every once in a while, and I think we all do this, maybe it's just me, but every once in a while, I'll come up with an idea or some other way where I'm like, that could be a nice little way to make some extra money. Like it, the millennial term is side hustle. Have you heard this term? It's a side hustle, which at first sounds bad because we used to say things like, oh, you hustled that person, which was a negative term. But now a side hustle means like, oh, I'm hustling on the side making some money. I don't know, crazy millennials, whatever. Um, I love you guys. You're the future. Um, And so every once in a while I get this idea like, oh man, I could do some like YouTube videos or I could do an Etsy shop or I could do this other little business over here. And then I always have to stop and I have to come back because it's something that I've put as a check on my own life. Okay, this is, this is I think it's biblical, but this is more me than anything else because I have this saying that I always go through, which is this, every business is exactly the same. We're all trading hours for dollars. That's what we're doing. We're trading hours for dollars. And the deal is, as soon as we have enough dollars, we should stop giving away hours. And every time I come up with this idea to like do a little side hustle or work on this thing, I have to come back and be like, what would I have to sacrifice to do that? Because I run a business and I have three young, beautiful kids who are still young enough to want to snuggle with me on the couch in the morning. And I'm going to take that for as long as I can get it. 
And I do a lot of work here at the church. And in order to do anything that would be on the side, I'd have to give some of that stuff up. And what would I be giving it up for? Trinkets and upgrades. Really? Trinkets and upgrades. That is a ridiculous thing to give away my precious hours for. I have a roof over my head. I have food on the table. I'm so blessed. I mean, now keep my hours and invest them in something else. I really think this is hugely important for us to understand. It's so big. You know, I was talking with my wife about it this morning. And she goes, well, you got to be careful there. And I agree. I absolutely agree. She says, some people are just struggling to pay the bills. Absolutely. I completely get that. But I also stand back and I say, you know, it's amazing what we've decided as a culture is a necessity now. How many of you, raise your hand, um, probably one or two generations above me, when you were young and married, had one car between the two of you? My generation thinks that would be absolutely intolerable, unacceptable. That would be horrible. I'd have to, that would be oppression. It's just amazing what we've decided is a necessity. And it's no different. Our culture is no different. I mean, you look at, I was thinking about it today. What are the Jews so mad about with Rome? It's money. Rome's not that oppressive. I mean, look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh enslaved you. Pharaoh would not let you worship your God. Pharaoh killed your children. Rome builds your roads, protects you, lets you worship, lets you keep your language, lets you keep your culture, just wants some of your money. I want some of your money. And, Je- and everyone wants Jesus to overthrow this giant oppression. And Jesus is like, it's, it's, it's money, really, and it's not the point. It's not the point. And if that's not the point, then... What is the point? And the terminology that Jesus uses here is supposed to spark something in our head because he holds up this coin, which by the way, he had to ask for a coin, meaning he didn't have a single coin. And he says, whose image is on this coin? They say Caesar's. Is there another coin that has an image of God on it? No. What has the image of God imprinted on it? We do. We do. What Jesus is saying here is, it's not about money. It's about you. It's about my relationship with you. And I want you to give yourself to me. I want part of your life. I want part of every aspect of your life. I want to be involved when you're doing the dishes in the morning, when you're laughing with your kids, when you're going to work. Give yourself to me. Don't worry about money. That's not the point. The point is, my relationship with you and this partnership I want to build when we do together what Israel failed to do and tell the world about his kingdom. So cool. So then the Sadducees come up. It said there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and rise up offspring for his brother. The Sadducees are quoting, um, I wrote it down. Deuteronomy 25. They're quoting Deuteronomy 25. It's an Old Testament law. The Sadducees, by the way, didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Okay? None of the prophets, nothing else. Um, Which makes me wonder why they considered themselves religious. It's just kind of weird. Um, Side note, it's in my own head. 
Keep those things to yourself in the future. All right, moving on. (laughs) And they said, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, but no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven died and left no children. Unlucky. Number six and number seven were fools. I'm just saying. (laughs) Afterward, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Most commentators say this was a very common scenario that the Sadducees would use. What they're trying to say is, listen, this is so complicated. Clearly, there can't be an afterlife because how would you deal with problems like this? Do you remember being in elementary school when your teacher told you that there, were, there was no such thing as a stupid question? And then you grew up and you had the point where you had to train someone in something or maybe you had children of your own and you realized, oh yes, there are stupid questions. <laughs> this is a stupid question. This is just semantics. And so Jesus doesn't even really address it. He just says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they were equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but God of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The question is this. Is there a heaven? Is there a resurrection? What happens after we die? And I think it's a very interesting and appropriate time for that question to be brought up. Because what did Jesus just say in the last passage? Hey, I want you to give your whole self to me. And for some of us, and for some people in our culture, you might stand back and you say, well, is it going to be worth it? And then Jesus immediately addresses heaven. He says, hey, something's coming, and it's a whole new deal. Relationships are going to be hugely important in heaven. I know a lot of people have read this passage and be like, oh, no, I'm not going to be married anymore. And some people have read it and be like, sweet, I'm not going to be married anymore. Um, That's not the point. The point is, it's a whole new deal and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be eternal and we're going to be with our father and this little petty time of life and the insignificant sufferings we go through are going to absolutely be worth it. How many of you guys have seen that illustration that Francis Chan does with the rope and heaven? Have you guys seen that? Okay, it's so cool. I almost brought the rope up, but I can't do it nearly as good as him. So I'm just going to explain to you what he does. He comes up with this rope, huge long rope on the stage. And typical Francis Chan style is walking along and he's talking about eternity and heaven and how wonderful it is and how long eternity is. And he gets to the very end and he's got like one inch of the rope left and he goes, this is your life on earth. That is eternity. And this is your life on earth. And we spend so much time worrying about what kind of car we're going to drive between here and here. What kind of house we're going to live in between here and here. And if we're going to have enough money to retire right there. And that's eternity. And we're missing it. And I just, whenever I think about things in life that are bothering me, I always picture that. This life is so short. 
It's so little. And yet, God wants to partner us, partner with us in it to accomplish so many wonderful things. Give yourself to him. Give him authority. It is absolutely going to be worth it. It's going to be amazing. And then Jesus says this. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? It's a confusing, weird, wordy little passage. This is what Jesus is basically saying. Who do you say that I am? Over and over and over again in Luke, the question is posed, who do you say that Jesus is? Because it's absolutely, fundamentally important. Who do you say, who do I say Jesus is? Because here's what was happening here. Many of the people were admitting, were acknowledging, were accepting that Jesus was the son of David. That is a title of heredity. But the scripture clearly says that the son of David is also Lord. David even calls him Lord right here in this passage. That's what Jesus is quoting. Lord is a title of divinity. And what Jesus is saying to the people is, who do you say that I am? You say that I'm the son of David, but am I Lord? My Lord, am I preeminent? Am I in charge? Am I the one who's worthy of worship? And I think we can easily do the same thing because I can easily say, Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus is the son of God. But is he Lord? Is he Lord of my life, of my time, of my finances, of my emotions, of my decisions? Is he Lord? What title have we given him? Because if he is the son of God, then he is Lord. That's what this says. It's so important for us to establish what we believe about Jesus. Is he Lord? Have you given him authority? Will you partner with him in bringing forth the kingdom like the Israelites were supposed to do, like he's asked us to do now? Will you give him your whole self? Is he Lord? And then this passage ends in these two little verses, three verses. I'm going to read them because we're supposed to read the entire chapter, but really they belong with next chapter. So we're not going to talk about them. I'm just going to read them. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in log robes and love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their condemnation. He just basically condemns the scribes and the Pharisees who are challenging all this, who will not give him authority, who are worried about money and not giving themselves to God, who refuse to hear correction. He says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. But I want to close tonight looking back at verse one, because it's really, really interesting to me. It was so interesting that I when I saw it, when it jumped out at me, what this verse says, I called like six different people to discuss it with them. Like, what does this mean? What does this mean? So let me read it for you. So one day, as Jesus was teaching, in, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He hasn't been betrayed yet. He hasn't died yet. He hasn't riven for the grave yet. And he's teaching the gospel. 
the good news. This is actually the 10th time Luke uses this phrase. Jesus was teaching the gospel. He was teaching the gospel over and over again. Never jumped out at me until this. And I think I've always thought of the gospel as Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. And that's clearly encompassed in it. But what this told me is it's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Jesus isn't talking about his death. He's not saying, hey, good news, you're going to kill me. It's not good news. God came to save us and we killed him. It's bad news. He rose again. Good news. But it's bigger than that. And here's what I think it is. This is the gospel. It's that God left heaven to pursue us. It's Christmas. It's Emmanuel. In order that he might forgive us, not judge us. You get that? That's the gospel. That's what Jesus is preaching. God came not to judge you, but to forgive you. God is pursuing you, actively loving you, pursuing you, knocking at the door, not to judge you or to condemn you, but to forgive you and to partner with you. Isn't that amazing? That is good news. And that is the kind of God that I want to have authority in my life. That is the kind of God I want to partner with. I got to tell everyone about that kind of a God. That is the kind of God I would give my whole self to. That's the kind of God we get to spend eternity with. That's Lord. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's Christmas. God came. Not to condemn, but to forgive. Oh, the cross became the mechanism. And he conquered death. And he rose again. And it all plays into it. But the gospel is God came. God's pursuing you because he loves you. And he wants to forgive you. And he wants to spend eternity with you. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you. You love us. You pursue us in order to forgive us. Father, help me to pursue people in order to forgive them. What a beautiful thing. May I be like you in that. Be Lord in my life. Be Lord in our lives. I pray that this evening, tomorrow, this week, that we would give you authority, that we would partner with you to show the world how great it is to serve a wonderful, loving God. Take our whole selves, Lord. Be Lord of our lives this day, in this season. In Jesus' name, amen.